angels. Do you have a guardian angel? Are there angels battling in the heavenlies? What in the world is going on with angels? We'll look at the word today. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, we are going to have a fascinating discussion today about angels. Yes, angels. What does the Word of God say about angels? How does this develop from Old Testament to New Testament? What can the Jewish background to the New Testament tell us about what people believe concerning angels at that time? Now, my guest that's going to discuss this in great detail today is Dr. Michael Heiser. Uh, He is an unusual man in that his books are best-selling books, but his training is highly academic. He is a trained professor. He has a Ph.D. from a secular university in Semitic languages, just as I do. And yet he has a way of popularizing material. He's been a guest with me a number of times before, and uh, we always have a fascinating discussion. Perhaps you heard of him with his book, The Unseen Realm. Uh, Perhaps you have read some of his other books. Uh, Perhaps you have uh, Lagos software, and uh, you've really enjoyed using that. Dr. Heiser is overseeing that in terms of the academic side of it. So he's going to be joining me, his new book, Angels, What the Bible Really Says About God's Relevant Host. And, uh, okay, hang on one second. We are just having an issue with our connection, and I am just going to ask for a phone number from Dr. Heiser now and then we will get him on the line with us shortly. Uh, here's something really interesting, all right? Uh, and it looks like Dr. Heiser was expecting a Skype connection with us today, whereas we are trying to connect via phone. So that, I think, is our problem. On the one hand, we worship God. We worship God only. We don't worship intermediary beings. In the book of Revelation, at the end of the book of Revelation, John the Apostle falls down at the feet of an angel, and the angel says, don't, don't worship me, I'm, I'm just a fellow servant like you are. And the Hebrew word for, for angel, malach, is, is actually someone who is a messenger. So sometimes it can just refer to a human being who is sent on a mission. The book Malachi is actually Malachi, my messenger. That's what it is in Hebrew. But the majority of the time, this word is used in Scripture for a supernatural being, for a a being created by God who is not flesh and blood. And these angelic beings have great power. These angelic beings have great authority. These angelic beings are sent on missions to support us, God's people. There is also warfare in the spirit. 
Uh, there are battles in the spirit that are being fought, and these angels are intimately involved. In fact, let me just do one more thing to get Dr. Heiser here with us. Okay, looks like we've got the right number to call. Okay, we should be joined by him any moment. Uh, his new book that I'm holding up, Angels. In fact, let me just tell you about this, what the Bible really says about God's heavenly host. In fact, uh, we have a special resource offer. Check this out, only on our website, org. You get his book together with my 12-hour teaching on the subject of angels, demons, and deliverance. I recorded this years back. It's the best teaching I ever did on it. In-depth, looking at what the Bible says about angels, about demons, and about the subject of deliverance from demonic power. Without further ado, my guest, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Michael, sorry for that mix-up we had getting on the air. Great to be with you today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for sticking with me. <laughs> oh, oh, no, I, the error, I think, was on our end. So, so Michael, right before you came on, I mentioned your background being somewhat unique in that you are highly trained academically, and, and most folks who will go the academic route and PhDs from secular universities and things like that, you know, you go on to be professors or you write academic monographs and things like that. So you have all those credentials and you do all that academic work to undergird Logos software. And yet your books, which are well-researched and, and full of detail, are, are popular in tone. Anyone can read them. Was that something that, that you had to kind of learn to do, find that balance, or did it always come easily to communicate on a popular level? Well, boy, yeah, I'd, I'd like to say that I... I uh, made all sorts of strategic decisions and, you know, put my nose to the grindstone, but I, I really can't. I mean, I, it, it, I think it comes more naturally. Um, plus I have a good editor. <laughs> mm-hmm. That helps. It so, uh, all right. You, you've written on the unseen realm. So that's an obvious segue to writing about angels, but is it really, you really read a whole book? about angels? Is there that much material in the Bible about angels? Yeah, there is. I mean, it, it's a it's a drill-down book. You know, Unseen Realm that came before it is this Genesis to Revelation sort of lay of the land biblical theology with a specific eye toward how the unseen world intersects with ours by design. And so this one drills down on the good guys. There is enough material for that. And there's going to be a following book at some point. Uh, the manuscript's already handed in, but I, who knows when it's going to appear on the bad guys. And I did that by design too, because the you know the bad guys get all the press. You know they get all they get all the stage time. It seems when we want to talk about these things. But the the loyal members of God's heavenly host, you know, the Scripture has a lot to say about them too. Yeah, some years back, it was actually in the the late '80s. I really started to dig into this. I just went through everything in the Bible about angels and demons and was shocked by how much material there was. Obviously, the world in which we live, especially our Western culture, we don't think about these things so much. So we kind of downplay how much is in the Bible about this, but there is a tremendous amount. So let me start with a simple question. Does every believer have a personal guardian angel? You know, I I don't know that we're given that kind of, precision in the description, but I do think we're given enough to make the conclusion, yes, 
uh, reasonable. And I say it that way because, you know, there are verses like Matthew 18 about, uh, you know, Jesus warning about offending little ones. And part of his reasoning is that you don't want to do that because the, you know, the, their angel always sees the face of my father. You know, we have Hebrews 1.14 that angels are ministering spirits sent, you know, on the behalf, you know, to assist those who will inherit salvation. And there's a long history uh, of this in the Old Testament, as, as you know. Um, ancient Near Eastern culture, Old Testament, uh, Israelite culture and scripture, you know, has this idea of heavenly books, not just the book of life, but there are actually a variety of books. Uh, and, and, then, and the metaphor isn't to teach us that, well, God has a bad memory, so he needs help. You know, the, the, the metaphor is there to teach us that God doesn't miss anything. And as I talk about at length in Unseen Realm, God, is, the way God runs things is he includes as partners his intelligent creatures, in this case members of the heavenly host, to help him, you know, govern the world, you know, administer the world. And part of that task, you know, the bigger task, is assisting believers and, and you know, having this relationship where the supernatural world intersects with the, the human world. And so if you put all that together, it kind of depends It depends how you define guardianship. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that's part of the issue, but I think at the very least we can say the idea that God tasks members of the heavenly host to assist believers and that this occurs on a personal level and not just sort of some ambiguous, you know, ethereal abstract level. I think that's a biblical idea. Got it. And you've mentioned the heavenly host a few times. You start your book out referring to the heavenly host. So in Scripture, God is the God of hosts, Adonai Tzvaot. So it's hosts, it's armies. Uh, what, what does that suggest that they are referred to in the sense of hosts slash armies, both in terms of function, order, number? What does that title mean to you? Yeah, that, that's that's an interesting question, and it's interesting to me how you how you put it that way. I mean, the most obvious overlap is this, you know, the the army metaphor, which you know you you see that in the Old Testament, and you'll certainly see it in the New Testament as well, and the the intertestamental literature, where you know God has a large number of celestial beings, you know, his his supernatural children, as it were, that assist him in. In a sort of judgment, there you get the military context, but, but host also includes, you know, the fact that they have other jobs as well. It's, you know, it's not just some sort of, you know, military offensive going on, but it does refer as well to bureaucracy, and, and there are a number of tasks. And I, again, I like the way you put this, because what the first thing I do in the book, in, in the first chapter, is talk about terminology in the Old Testament. And this is where I think a lot of our modern Christian confusion stems from. You know, we tend to smash all the vocabulary together and then call everything in the heavenly host an angel. And that really misses a lot of things. So what I do in the first chapter is I, I approach the terminology and divide, you know, put it into three buckets. One is, one is there are terms that describe the nature of a member of the heavenly host, what, what, what that thing is terms like spirits, for instance, mm-hmm. or holy ones, okay? And then there are terms that describe status and hierarchy, and sons of God is one of those terms, council, you know, assembly, you know, and, and even host, again, it, 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 there's a subservient relationship there, a service relationship as well. But then there are specific third category you know, vocabularies that terms that describe function, 
Angel's one of those. It's basically a job description. A member of the heavenly host takes a message. That's what an angel, a malach, or an angelos in Greek, that's, that's what they are. But then you have other ones. You have ministers, you have watchers, you've got mediating language, cherubim and seraphim. And these are throne guardian terms. They're all job descriptions. They are, they are task-oriented. But since we sort of smash angel with cherubim and seraphim, we come out in our Christian tradition as, you know, angels have wings and, you know, that everything's an angel. Uh, mm. it, it creates some confusion uh, in terms of what actually you find in the text and what goes on or doesn't go on in certain passages. All right. So with that... Uh, are cherubim, kruvim in Hebrew, seraphim, seraphim, are they angels? Are demons fallen angels? Oh, I got a bunch of questions for Dr. High, so you can call with yours, 866 348 7884. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome back, friends, to the Line of Fire broadcast, 866-348-7884. Number to call my special guest, Dr. Michael Heiser. His brand new book, Angels, what the Bible really says about God's heavenly host, widely available, getting great, great reviews on Amazon. I just checked there uh, before the show, just been out since last month. Great reviews, one after another. The only single negative review said, there's too much information in here, <laughs> too much of the Bible in here. So, I mean, overwhelmingly great support. And if you go to my website, sdrbrown.org, you can get the book along with the 12-hour teaching series I did on angels, demons, and deliverance. Before we get into my specific questions, all of which, of course, are answered in your book, I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond. I just saw this YouTube comment, uh, comment on our YouTube live feed about you, sir. He elevates false books to scripture level, then changes the Bible translation to match the false books. So I am guilty, <laughs> sir, today of having a false teacher on yeah. my show today. So... Uh, only because other people have this misconception. I, I yeah. want to take a minute to address it. I don't want to degrade the discussion by de uh, addressing these things, but some people just don't understand what you believe, what you, what you teach. And so number one, do you elevate false books to scripture level? Number two, do you change the Bible translation to match the false books? What do you say, Dr. Yeah. Michael Heiser? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it, it, it's silly. I mean, this is a person offended by context. You know, and if you're offended by context, well, there isn't much I can do to help you. I mean, the fact is, is that biblical writers in both the Old Testament and the New Testament read books. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, they read books. And the books that they read, you know, it might be the Baal Cycle, it might be Enuma Elish, in the New Testament, it might be some Greek philosopher, the Book of Enoch, or whatever— when they read books, sometimes they quote from those books. Sometimes yep. there's something in those books that, you know, sort of they allude to, or that we can tell, again, if we've read that other stuff, we can tell, help the biblical writer express an idea. You know, folks, I don't write the Bible. Okay? I didn't write it, I don't write it. I just read it. And mm -hmm. when biblical writers read things, and those things contribute to what they write, then we need to know that. 
we need to be able to read the Scripture uh, from the perspective of the people that God used to produce it. And when we do that, then we interpret the Bible in context, and we become more intelligent readers of the inspired text. Right, so it's it's that simple. The Bible, the same Bible it's that I use, that. yeah, is the same Bible Dr. Heiser uses. We're not adding, taking away, we're simply explaining how things are quoted, how they're used. And it's not a matter of changing Bible translations. It's a matter of yeah. looking at all the evidence we have if, from the ancient manuscripts and things like that. If, if maybe the questioner needs to hear me say something, I'm I'm quoted on YouTube as saying a few hundred, maybe a few thousand times by now. <laughs> I don't consider the Book of Enoch inspired. I don't think it should be in the canon. But who cares? Okay, what I what I do recommend is that you we read that stuff because if we do, we'll be able to sort of pick up little breadcrumbs that the writers are laying down. We'll pick up what they're laying down a little bit better because we've read material that they read and that helped them express certain ideas. So it really is that simple. It's just context. That's simple. It, it really is that simple. In any case, I, I just wanted to get that out of the way. Maybe, maybe I, I just need the caveat before you come on. He is not a false teacher. He believes in the same one God, the same Bible. Now for the discussion. Okay, okay. And I'm sure you had to deal with stuff about me when I was on your podcast a little ways oh, sure. back. Yeah. In any case, in any case. Uh, so cherubim, seraphim, are, are they angels? Yeah, they don't. They are separate functions. So I would say any given member of the heavenly host can serve God in a variety of ways. And there are some who take messages. Those are angels. We call them angels. We call them messengers. That's what the term means, because that describes what they're doing. Whereas cherubim and seraphim are throne guardians. One term is drawn from the world of Mesopotamia. The other is drawn from the world of ancient Egypt, but they describe the same task the same job description. Now, I don't know if, if they work in shifts, <laughs> where, you know, what, a, 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 you know, a, a karub, a cherub, gets off work, and then he, he moonlights as a messenger later. I don't know. But all of these terms are just job descriptions. They describe various functions, things that the heavenly host does in service to God. Uh, you know, the, the, the cherubim and the seraphim, that's about protecting sacred space about keeping God's space, you know, free from defilement. That's why when prophets are summoned to the throne room of God, they need to be purified. You know, and you see this in particular scenes. Uh, that, that's what they do. They protect God's, you know, turf in that way. Now, obviously, as a biblical scholar, you could get into things and say, wow, this is fascinating, this is amazing, and, and we spend our lives doing that as biblical scholars. But then there's the other question, why does this matter to me? How does this mm-hmm. help me? Why is this in the Bible? And the Bible does say it matters. It, it does tell us about angelic activity. So how does this help me? Why is this important for me to know as a believer? Yeah, I actually opened the book addressing that question. And, and the short version, the elevator, elevator pitch version, is the more— you know, you know about the heavenly host, the more you'll be able to pick up on how God looks at us. And what I mean by that is there, there's a lot of vocabulary, uh, family vocabulary, partnering vocabulary that God uses of the heavenly host that also is used of believers. 
And frankly, there are specific examples that sort of fade into the background when we get to the New Testament for members of the heavenly host, and that really become our property uh, as believers. And, and, you know, what that means is that the vocabulary isn't incidental. Let's just take sons of God or children of God. That's a very familiar term in the Old Testament, the way the heavenly host gets talked about. Over time, through the intertestamental period and on into the New Testament, that language begins to recede, and then in the New Testament, you actually don't have it used of supernatural beings, members of the heavenly host, but you do have it used of believers. Mm-hmm. It's believers that are called holy ones, and I, I hate the, the translation saints because it misses, frankly, it obscures and obliterates the Old Testament connection. Mm-hmm. But it's believers who are holy ones. It's believers who are sons of God. It's believers who are children of God. And we're supposed to be thinking about Old Testament when we encounter those terms. God wanted his heavenly family to be with his human family back in Eden. Humanity was supposed to be created fit for sacred space, and they were. That's obliterated by the fall. Uh, but but God is still thinking of, of, of humans that way, especially when you get to the, to the New Testament. And what's really fascinating is the way God looks at us, again, sort of influenced by this analogy or the, the, the template of God's heavenly family, uh, really serves to help us sharpen our focus on God's earthly family, is the Incarnation. You know, Jesus is not only our Lord, he is our sibling, he's our brother. Okay, you know, this language, again, in Hebrews 1 and 2 is really important, because God now looks at us not only as full partners, but he looks at us in a way that is superior to them. Mm-hmm. This is why we are going to judge angels, 1 Corinthians 6. We are the ones put over the nations and not the angels. It wasn't for the angels that Christ became a man. It was for humans. And you, you, can, you can sort of see the one side, the New Testament side, the side we're living, more clearly. If you understand how God relates to and how he thinks about his heavenly family in the Old Testament, and this is not an accident, it's not you know coincidental, uh, because we're supposed to think of ourselves as belonging with God, yeah, as, as fit for his, his presence. And again, they're all, those are just two examples of, of how the, the, the one template you know, informs the other. But a lot of these thoughts just run through Scripture. And it's not like we can't get the Gospel unless we read Mike's books. No, that's ridiculous. But you can appreciate sort of the framework and for, you know, for how believers are talked about if you know a little bit about the unseen world and the way God interacts with and partners with and talks about his heavenly family. Yeah, it, it it is important to step back and think about that because, Michael, on, honestly, for for the most part, when we think about angels, we don't think about these analogies. We don't think about angels were called yeah. sons of God. How is it that we are sons of God? Angels are part of a heavenly family. What does that mean to us? So sometimes we just need to step back and, and look at that larger picture, and then then. It helps us if we draw the parallel because we know the reality of our relationship with God. It helps us recognize how real these angelic beings are. Hey, we've just got a minute before the break, but for your average Westerner, what do you think is the the biggest obstacle for thinking about the angelic and spiritual realm? 
Yeah, I think the the biggest obstacle is being a Westerner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know we are we are raised in a modern materialistic, you know, rationalistic scientific worldview, and I don't believe for a minute that that the modern world has to be in conflict with the spiritual world and its reality, but assigning reality to the spiritual world is sort of beaten out of us unconsciously and subconsciously by virtue of who we are uh, yeah. as moderns. Yeah, it's, it's very true. It is our upbringing. You know, there's the joke that in Africa there are no atheists or the spiritual realm is just as real as the natural realm. These are just sayings, but it does remind us of a worldview that's very different. The new book by Dr. Michael Heiser, Angels. If you'd like to get it with my extensive 12-hour teaching series on angels, demons, and deliverance, go to our website, AskDrBrown.org. We come back. All right, I've got to ask that question. What about demons? Are they fallen angels? We'll be right back. of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome, friends, to the Line of Fire broadcast. My guest today, Dr. Michael Heiser, Old Testament and Semitic scholar and best-selling author. His newest book, off to best-selling pace already, is Angels, what the Bible really says about God's heavenly host. To get the book, Together with a 12-hour audio series I did teaching on angels, demons, and the subject of deliverance, go to my website, AskDrBrown.org. Michael, uh, I know this is not the subject of your current book, and yet uh, it will be the subject of, I believe, your next book. But in a nutshell, are demons fallen angels, in your biblical opinion? Yeah, I, I think that phrasing is imprecise, because again, I view angel as a job description. I would say demons demons are evil, hostile, supernatural agents. They mm-hmm. do not come, they do not come from the heavenly host. And if we if we take seriously what is hinted at in the Old Testament, as far as, and I'm thinking here of the Rephaim text, which you're very well familiar with. If we take that seriously along with Second Temple literature, demons are the disembodied spirits of the descendants of the Nephilim, the giant clan. So they are not fallen angels or even fallen um, celestial beings, uh, beings who were members of the heavenly host who went into rebellion. They're something different, mm-hmm. but they are, they're, you know, they all have the same enemy, and that would be God. <laughs> You know, and, and believers as well. And, and basi- basically, if we are in an all-out battle with demonic power, the biggest issue is how do we deal with these powers as opposed to, were you fallen yeah. angels or, dis- you know, so th- it's an interesting question. Right. And the, the, the Bible does not give a definitive, specific answer to it, which is interesting. In other words, if this was something essential to us to know, we would know it. But w- what about... Going back to angels, and I want to stay there the rest of the broadcast, what about angels who are identified in person, as you mentioned in your book, like Michael, like Gabriel? I mean, that's fascinating. They have, they have names. They're spoken about. In Daniel 10, there's, there's a, a, a battle. It seems like a wrestling match in the heavenlies, and one angel has to come and help the other. I, I mean, what, what do you make of this? 
Yeah, I, I think in the, in the Daniel case, again, the point is in concert with something much older than, than Daniel's you know, own, own writing. And that is the Deuteronomy 32 worldview that I spent a lot of time talking about in Unseen Realm, that the nations uh, in punishment and judgment at Babel were assigned to other members of the heavenly host, who by definition are lesser than the God of, of Israel, than Yahweh. And they were supposed to be caretakers and rule the nations according to God's good justice. And God would get back to them, because he made a covenant with Abraham, talking about that the nations would be brought back into the family. But in the meantime, that just didn't go very well, because, again, of the, the, the free will nature of you know, members of the heavenly host, the sons of God, these angelic, you know, quote-unquote angelic beings. And we know from Psalm 82 that the those sons of God who were assigned to the nations become corrupt. You know, we're not given a timeline. We don't know exactly when. Again, I, I, I agree with you. If, if these things were important, God would have spelled them out. But they do become hostile and, and, and evil. And so that's the backdrop for this situation in Daniel. What, what Daniel really telegraphs is that behind the geopolitical movements that we see, you know, that, that uh, are administered by people, there's a greater supernatural intelligence that is fallen, is evil, is hostile to God and to his people. Now, we have to remember that the reason why the nations are what they are, why there's injustice, why there's evil, why there's you know, the enslavement that we see, all sorts of, of horrible things, there's really two reasons for that. One is people. Okay? People are fallen. People are perfectly you know, quite capable of seeking self-gratification and power and violence and whatever. But the other is this supernatural element, and I think that's what Daniel you know, makes clear. Now, now, personally, I think that the little hints we get about uh, you know, Michael uh, needing assistance or, or, you know, this whole sort of situation. I, I don't believe that Michael is the highest celestial being uh, underneath God's authority, and I think Daniel 10 gives us a glimpse of that. Michael is one of the chief princes. He is not the prince of the host. He's not the one in command of everything. So what I do in the book is I tie that language in with Joshua 5, back to the angel of the Lord, and a few things that happened later in Daniel 11 that telegraph that there is there is a, quote, man in these scenes that is unidentified that speaks to Michael, that orders him. He's not Gabriel. He's somebody else, but he's this divine man. Again, God is man in the Old Testament. And that, again, points our way to the ultimate lordship of Christ in, in the New Testament. But, you know, the more immediate point of your question is, yeah, behind geopolitics, there is a supernatural element that we need to realize Scripture affirms. Mm. And let's say we go to a passage like Exodus 3, where the angel of the Lord, so the Malach, the messenger of the Lord, appears to Moses in a burning bush that's not consumed. And then as Moses interacts with this voice in the burning bush, the voice begins to speak directly for God, and yeah. in fact, Moses is told, take your shoes off your feet. The place where you're standing is holy. Does that indicate that this was a, a pre-appearance of the Son of God or some type of theophany, God literally appearing? Or is it just that the angel carried the presence of God, hence made that ground holy and could speak on behalf of God? Yeah, I, th I think this particular angel is Yahweh, the God of the Bible, in human form. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and... 
in part because of that passage, we do see God in human form uh, in other passages, and one of them actually draws on the Exodus 3 language, and that's the, the incident in Joshua 5, mm-hmm. where the, the captain of the Lord's host, again, the, who I view as the prince of princes and the prince of the host, you know, the, the one who's over all of it. I view them all, all these characters as interchangeable, essentially the same. Um, you know, he, he says, take your shoes off you know, from your feet, because where you're standing is holy ground. So we have a direct connection, word for word, you know, back back to the Exodus 3 issue. And here, in, in this case, he's embodied. He, he, he appears as a man, at least. And, and that, that becomes important, because the description of this one, with the sword drawn in his hand, that phrase in Hebrew, as I point out in the book, is used only two other places. One is in Numbers 22, the other is in First Chronicles 20, or 21, where it, the, the, the person with that description is clearly, explicitly called the angel of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. You know, I know scholars like to say, well, you know, Mike, you know, you're misunderstanding the whole ancient Near Eastern concept of, of the messenger, and of course when the messenger shows up, the people in the room assume that he's speaking for the one who sent them, you know, sent him, and, and so we use the first-person language. I, I get all that. Okay, I know all that material. It's just too bad that that doesn't work in Genesis 48. You look at Genesis 48, 15, and 16, this is Jacob's mm-hmm. prayer. Yep. You know, when he says, may the God who protected me, may the God who strengthened me, you know, and you expect the third stanza to be, may the God who did something else bless the boys. That's not what you get. It's may the angel. And then the verb, you know, may he bless, is singular. It's grammatically mm-hmm. singular. So you can't translate it, may they bless. Yep. It's may he bless. And the angel is not the speaker. The angel says nothing in the passage. It's Jacob's recollection, his own assessment of these episodes in his life. And, and, and clearly, God and the angel have been linked together by virtue of the singular verb and these episodes that preceded. So I you know, think it, all of that is really important you know, for, for you know, God as man in the Old Testament. I wouldn't say this was Jesus of Nazareth, because Jesus of Nazareth you know, was the one conceived in the womb of Mary. I would say it's the second person of the Trinity. Yes, exactly. You know, as God is man in the Old Testament, and now we get the incarnation of the same person, the same person of the Trinity, now incarnate in Christ. The incarnation is, is beyond, you know, a visual, you know, deity, uh, or even an embodied deity in the Old Testament. It's, the incarnation is, is just a step up from all of that. Yeah. And you know what I find remarkable? I had developed all my own material on this based on the Hebrew Bible and based on my study of rabbinic literature and written about it extensively only to discover videos on YouTube before Unseen Realm, before I'd seen that, videos on YouTube where you were saying basically the same thing using the same arguments and we had never met and never discussed these issues and you weren't quoting me and I wasn't quoting you. So in other words, these are deductions from Scripture. And even, you know, in, for example, when, when Paul's writing to the Thessalonians and he prays, He speaks of the Father and the Son, basically, that God would guide, and it's a singular verb. It's it's the same kind of same kind of thing here. And then Hosea twelve it references an angel uh, that Jacob wrestled with an angel. Uh, Genesis thirty two says he wrestles with a man, but then he says, "I've seen God face to face." I mean, that would seem to be the Elohim too. Yeah, yeah, the 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 exact Jewish for your Jewish listeners. They, they, you should not conclude, oh, these are just two Christian guys talking about this stuff who want to do Jewish things. Okay, no. No, go to Benjamin Summers' book. 
Yeah. Bodies of God. He's a professor. He's a Jew. He's a professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, and he'll say things point blank in his book like, the Christian idea of a trinity is quite compatible with the Hebrew Bible. Yep. Okay, it's not just us. It's people who just let the text speak unfiltered. And not only so, he was not thrilled with the conclusions that he came to. <laughs> and he's and he's been anything but like, hey, let me work with these Messianic Jews or let me work with these evangelical Christians. That's that's not his, his thinking at all. He's he's a liberal right. critical scholar, brilliant guy, obviously. And yes, yeah, same thing. I read his stuff and thought, amazing. He's coming to these same conclusions based on same literature. Hey, uh, one minute before the break, who is Mitatron? You have a whole section in your book about Second Temple Jewish angelology. Give us an introduction to Mitatron. Yeah, in, in, it depends on where you're at in the Enochian literature for this, but you know, Metatron, Metatron, you know, depending on who, you know, depending on whether you've seen anime, I guess. Um, this is one of those figures in Second Temple literature that becomes part of what scholars call the matrix of Jewish binitarianism, the Jewish godhead. Uh, Metatron, in in certain texts, is called Yah, has a relationship, and actually you get this terminology, Yahoel. You've got both names of God applied to this particular angel, you know, who, again, is unified or united to conceptually with Metatron. So this is another figure of, you know, a second god figure, not a bad guy, two good guys, Binitarian god. Yeah, and, and has this highly exalted place where he is as his lord. Very interesting. All right, more with Dr. Michael Heiser, the book, Angels. Oh, yeah, you want to get this. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. So here's, here's how you get the best of Mike and Mike. Go to my website, askdrbrown.org. Order Dr. Michael Hauser's new book, Angels, what the Bible really says about God's heavenly host. When you get that, we're including with it my 12-hour audio series, eight 90-minute lectures on angels, demons, and deliverance. It's a, it's a great savings, great deal at our website, sdrbrown.org. Uh, Michael, the, the longer we do the interview, the more questions I think I'd love to Asked. The good news is folks will get answers to all the questions in your book. Uh, someone asked on our Facebook live stream, do angels interact with us dimensionally? And obviously we could try to figure out what is meant by dimensionally. So the broader question, according to the Bible, do angels interact with believers today? Could we expect something like that? If so, how? What, what would it look like? Yeah, I, I do think... You know, it, angelic, again, we'll use the broad term, because by the time you hit the New Testament, um, the, the very nuanced language of the Old Testament, all these terms about function and hierarchy and whatnot, uh, they, they tend to be conflated into angels. So angel, by the time you hit the New Testament, is a term that was used for the good guys, and demon tends to be a term used for the bad guys. 
So we'll go with that. I think angelic uh, interaction with humans is a biblical idea. Not only do you have the, you know, watching or caretaking, assisting, you know, sort of thing, you know, guardian angel idea, but you do have, again, statements like in Hebrews 1.14, where angels are ministering spirits sent to, you know, be of assistance to those who will inherit salvation. So if you're going to affirm that verse, then that requires some sort of interaction. And I, I would tend to think, based on Hebrews 13, uh, the, the comment about extending hospitality to people because, hey, people have entertained angels unawares. Again, it, it harkens back to the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. But I would think that the Old Testament serves as our template here. This is this is how it worked. They were indiscernible, you know, from people. People didn't know in the Old Testament if they were in the presence of an angel, typically, until that, you know, angel did something pretty spectacular that people couldn't do, like strike a city blind, okay? You know, then the, the people in the, in the story, in, in this case, Genesis 19, Lot, figures out, well, okay, there must be something more to these two than you know, an ordinary visitor, because that's just not something people can do. So I tend to think that's the way it works. God sends uh, angels you know, out to minister to us, and we may not have the foggiest idea that that is what has just transpired. But we should be open to God doing this like he did in the Old Testament, because it's affirmed in the New Testament. All right, so Having you on the air, I've got a Bible scholar. You've you basically parsed every word of the, the Hebrew and Greek scriptures for Logos Software. So maybe you could help us, because I've, I've never found this verse, so I just must have missed it. But the verse in the Bible that explicitly <laughs> describes angels as, as fat little guys, primarily naked, <laughs> kind of wearing like a diaper kind of thing, uh, yeah. playing harps, floating on clouds. I, I, I somehow missed that verse. So could you please tell me where that is? So, so you want to know the Hebrew word for diaper-clad infant? Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, in, his, in his Mesopotamian context. Yeah, please. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, thanks for throwing that in. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is the kind of idea that, you know, derives or, or gets gets airtime in the Christian tradition because, you know, we not only conflate terms in the Old Testament, there you get the wings idea, conflating angel with cherubim and seraphim, but also later church tradition. Um, you know, in, in this case, the, the sense that, well, since here, here's assumption number one, since when Christians die, they become angels. When infants die and they're innocent, they're, they must be angels too. I mean, you, you get this sort of logic that fails in a number of, of respects, but the notion that infants who die are in the positive afterlife, in the presence of God, that sort of becomes a guiding you know, hermeneutical you know, rudder for leading to this description of angelic beings, little little cherubic beings. It, it, it's not biblical, even though I believe that biblically, yes, you know, infants, aborted, you know, children, uh, I, I, I think you can really marshal a good exegetical argument that they are with the Lord. That put aside, that doesn't have anything to do with a biblical description of these supernatural beings. But all those things tend to get conflated in Christian tradition and then just sort of pass on 
uh, as doctrine because angelology is just one of those things that people don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about. Um, you know, and I think to our to our detriment again because of the way you know the God's heavenly family and His heavenly partners, where the way that la- you know overlaps, maps over the way God looks at His believing human family. So I think that that's to our loss. And I, I remember, oh, maybe two years ago, I had Pastor Jack Graham on the phone with me, Pastor of Prestonwood Baptist, uh, doing a radio interview, and he had written a book on angels a very different style than yours, you know, based on him being kind of a, a preaching pastor and conveying things like that. But at the end of the interview, I said, man, I, I got to look at this afresh. I was so inspired by what he had to say and the role of angels in scripture that even though I knew it intellectually, I was freshly inspired. As, as you dig deep, as you open these things up, it's your, your goal is not to write inspirationally. Your goal is to inform. But as we're informed, we're edified, we're helped. There's, there's so much in the Bible about this. And you end the book dealing with, with myths and wrong conceptions, but is it a myth or is it a right interpretation of Jesus' words that, that angels don't sexually reproduce? Yeah, in, in, the, in the afterlife world, again, the, the presence of God where he is the source of life, you know, angels are not by nature embodied beings, and they're spirits. This is what the Bible calls them. So if you're in that realm, which of course in that passage you're thinking of it with the resurrection, in that realm, there, you know, there's no need of reproduction. It's not, you know, biological. You know, it's not the realm of embodiment. And that is not to deny that Jesus, you know, post-resurrection Jesus had a body, and we're going to get some sort of body, and so on and so forth. It, it is to deny that we, you know, necessarily have to have a body of you know, human terrestrial function, one of which is to perpetuate the species. Mm-hmm. However, you know, having said that, and again, in, in the book I go into you know, Second Temple literature about this too, it's not just Old and New Testament. Peter and Jude, you know, affirmed the Genesis 6 event as having to do with supernatural beings and not just normal people. And, and you have the sexual language there. Second Temple writers, of course, did the same thing as well. Ancient Near Eastern people, you know, outside the Bible did, but I think in the Bible this is the right way to read Sons of God in Genesis 6. Mm-hmm. You say, well, is there a contradiction there? No, because when you're in the terrestrial space, when you're in the terrestrial realm, flesh is something approximating human flesh, and maybe perhaps, you know, again, we're not told, like, what's the difference between this and incarnation other than, you know, the, the process of procreation and traveling through the birth canal and all that stuff. But we, we have something that is, is truly fleshly and in some sense human, even though we don't arrive at that body the same way when, it, when we're talking about an angel or the angel of the Lord or God as man or anything like that. We do not have incarnation yet in, in the truest sense of the term. But that body can do things that normal human bodies do. They can eat, but they don't have to. I mean, angels in their own sphere even though they're embodied in some way. They don't have to eat to perpetuate themselves. When they come to Earth, they do, they can, and they do. They can wrestle with people. You have this procreation language of Genesis 6. And I think when they're here, when they're in this space, then that changes from what they are on their own space, their own realm. And, and this is why you know Genesis 6 was viewed as such a horrific transgression, because... To, you know, to use Jude and Peter's language, you know, they left their proper domain. Mm-hmm. And to use Second Temple language, 
they tried to raise up imagers for themselves. You know, and, and that was viewed as an abomination to mm-hmm. sort of pull the rug out from under God's plan to, well, we want our own population. You know, we and, and this, this rivalry between certain members of the heavenly host and God, this is this is how this whole thing was interpreted. So, no, in heaven, no. They, they don't need bodies. They don't, they don't need bodily functions. But when they come to earth, this is the way their activity is described. And it seems to be some sort of, maybe not requirement, even though I like the phrase required form of dress, and I've used that. But it seems to be normative, some sort of embodiment that is human, seems to be the, uh, the way to go, you know, the way things are done yeah. when they occupy our space. And what's interesting also is that in the heavenly realm, there's no death, so there's not a yep. need to repopulate. And by the exactly. way, you'll, you'll be pleased to know that I once heard a pastor who had a, 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 was a missionary for years and died and, and claimed to have, have gone to heaven and, and then returned when he was resuscitated. And he said that he saw angels and they had no plumbing. So just to <laughs> just to confirm that from another angle, hey, uh, I'm sure if Dr. James White was on the air with me, he would love to interact with you about Psalm 82. But maybe you could do a broadcast with him on his show one day. But but thanks for giving an hour of your time. I know you're busy. I know it just went flying by. And friends, the book Angels: What the Bible Really Says About God's Heavenly Host. Always a delight to talk with you, brother. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So, friends, remember, go to my website, AskDrBrown.org. You get this book, hardcover, plus you get a 12-hour teaching series I did on what the Bible says about angels, demons, and deliverance. They go great hand-to-hand, only at AskDrBrown.org.